This is an interesting look at the London, UK art world in the 1960s. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. In the 1960s, two hot young art galleries opened in London's Mayfair, the Robert Fraser Gallery and the Kasmin Gallery. Both only lasted as long as the decade, but in the course of their short lifespans, these two rival galleries typified everything that was dynamic, energetic and new about the 60s London art scene. Robert Fraser lived an extraordinary life. Effortlessly hit, he embraced the wild side of the 60s scene. Sex, drugs, and eventually prison. He died when he was only 49. He was gorgeous, and I mean, he was sort of, you know, the beautiful suits, beautiful shirts, um, had been to eat and had high education. He was sort of, you know, very much a young man about town in a way. He had great charisma. You knew he was in a room when he was in a room. Then, and then he'd, he'd be stuttering as well, so maybe that's why I didn't speak that much. But uh, once you got to know him, he'd, he'd, be, he'd speak a lot. People like Andy Warhol are trying to integrate themselves with uh, the commercial world, to become a part of it, but also to do what they want to do. This is, this is what the, a breakthrough is. This interview with Fraser is the only archive footage that exists of him actually speaking. It was Fraser's enthusiasm for Warhol and all that was new in contemporary art that had taken him to America, age 22. I met Robert in New York, um, 1960. I had a step-uncle who was a collector and a gay man, and he knew Robert as a gay man and brought him to my studio, and this guy came. And he immediately spent 1,500 bucks. He got about 1,000 works, too, for this, but, I mean, nobody laid that kind of dough on me before. And he was funny. He was funny and knew everything. He was truly the first hip guy I ever knew. Right? Okay. A lot of people are saying at the moment that London is a particularly swinging city. Do you like living in London? It's my favorite town. I guess I like New York almost as much, but um, nowhere as much as London. Unlike Fraser, Kasmin was a family man and an intellectual. His main interest was in serious abstract art. While Fraser was learning his trade in New York, Kasmin was scouting around London where he signed up his only figurative artist, David Hockney, then 24 and still an art student. I met Kaz at the Young Contemporaries in, uh, in 1961. He bought a painting and uh, I met him. He came along, they had a discussion, you know, one of those discussions about the show and Kaz came along and that's when I met him. The Hockney was always one of the hardcore. I mean, if I had to list the artists that really interested me, they were Hockney, Anthony Caro, and Richard Smith. Very soon, Robin Denny as well. I thought, you know, it, there's enough that I like that other people aren't showing to, to perhaps start a gallery. In 1962, Fraser returned to London from New York. With the financial backing of his parents, he opened his gallery at 69 Duke Street, just off Oxford Street. The Robert Fraser Gallery was an arena for cutting-edge international art that was not being shown anywhere else in Britain. The gallery was on two floors. There was a very large plate glass window. 
You went round this little alcove. There was two sofas that faced each other. There was an electric kettle on a shelf. There was a little kitchen thing with sugar and tea bags and coffee and all that. And it was like, hey, Robert, can I just borrow the phone? He'd say, yeah, sure. His gallery was more than a place where business was done about pictures. Eight months later, in April 1963, Kazmin opened his gallery, just streets away from Fraser at 118 New Bond Street. Kazmin had the backing of Sheridan Dufferin, the Marquis of Dufferin and Arva, who he had befriended at Oxford University. The Kazmin Gallery was Britain's first architect-designed commercial space, built specifically to accommodate the new large abstract paintings coming from America. It was like walking into a... Everyone used to say it was like walking into a temple. You went down a narrow tube-like thing, and then you emerged into a large, beautifully lit gallery room. It was a very heroic, grand and glamorous space. I think it was a major event, the opening of Kazmin Gallery. He had just made this beautiful gallery and uh, wanted me to have a show with him. I went over and uh, we installed it. And Kaz knew what he was looking at. The first show was Concentric Circle Paintings by Kenneth Nolan. My favorite artist going, you know, was uh, the tops for me. I got more excitement out of his work than anyone else's at that time. It was a knockout first show. Your show was the first show at the new Kasmin Gallery. It was the very first show. Was it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. I thought it was there. Well, that's amazing. Do you, um, do you remember if the work was selling then in England? Were there any, was there anyone buying it? I think, yeah, I think they were selling some paintings. I think Sheridan bought one. <laughs> I liked abstract art the most, and I liked things that were beyond word, that were difficult to sum up in words. I liked paintings that got beyond it all. And Robert was very happy with things that I would have thought were frivolous. Did you ever know about the Robert Fraser Gallery? Yeah, he was showing Warhol, I think. So that was kind of over, over there somewhere. These were very separate pockets of artists. The two galleries were very different in atmosphere. Curiously, although it was Fraser who was homosexual, it was Kasmin's gallery that attracted a much more gay crowd. Well, that was because of Sheridan. That was part of his life, certainly. And, and of course, Hockney, even more than the Sheridan entrance, the Hockney, the Hockney boys. When I first knew him, he had National Health Spectacles, uh, black hair, crew cut. And what I saw was somebody who went to America, absolutely fell in love with, with contemporary American culture, converted to Lady Clairol and became a blonde, became overtly uh, gay and very proud of it, and a, a, in fact a spokesman for, for, for um, the joys of, of um, homosexuality. I loved the word clinging. I had a little cutting, a newspaper cutting, that said, boy clings to Cliff all night. And at the time, Cliff Richard was a very big singer. And I'd thought that's what it meant. I thought, my God, it's, he'd been clinging to Cliff Richard. I stuck it up, but it really was just some boy in Eastbourne or something. It was really on a real cliff. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living doll. Got to do my best to please her just cause she's a living doll. No matter how democratic David is and how liberal his views were and left-wing they were, he was still a working-class boy. And I think he offended Robert because he was, such an, he was such a healthy homosexual. Whereas Robert, the whole point of being gay for Robert was being in the closet. He loved this without being in the closet, you know, but he loved the secrecy in the night. You know, he wasn't about to parade around with, with pretty boys. It wasn't his deal. One now knows that the phrase was rough trade. Uh, 
wanted the ruffian on the stairs kind of edge to life. Robert in no way behaved openly as gay. And actually, to the best of my knowledge, didn't even live with anybody. I mean, maybe he did. I don't remember Robert having what nowadays is so amusingly called a partner. Did you know Robert Fraser? Oh, very well, very well. He actually tried to seduce me, but that's another story. No, I, I liked Robert. I mean... Did he, he succeed in seducing no, you? No, 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 no. Oh, I don't think so, you know. Got a roving eye and that is why she satisfies my soul. Got the one and only walking... Robert Fraser basically was visual and he was the only art dealer I've ever met who was totally 100% visual. He had a great eye and he knew everybody so he could place things, you know. He would know when he saw something. I, he would immediately say, he'd look down and say, I know who'd like that. And the next day he would ring them up and it would go, you know. I think he had as much of a nose as an eye. Um, rather like a dog, you know. Sort of. I have no idea if he had a good eye. He had a good ear, you know, for, for it. The artists Fraser signed up were rarely his discoveries. More often, they had just begun to make a name for themselves. Bridget Riley first showed with Fraser in the mid-60s. At that time, her black-and-white abstract paintings with their extreme optical impact were already causing a stir. Could it be you just don't try? At a sort of turning point in my life, I had a very close friend who was a man who was much older than me. And um, I was extremely immature, and I think I was quite a problem in, in many ways for him to cope with. And when the affair broke up, I felt extremely hurt, as everybody does in those sort of situations, and I thought that I would, couldn't talk to him because he didn't understand anything, but I would paint him a message, loud and clear, so that he was, had, was in no doubt as to exactly what I thought. <laughs> and so uh, those were my black and white paintings. I think they were beautifully aggressive. I think contrast is. I mean, it's the clash of symbols, it's the exclamation mark, it's the strongest means possible. That I wanted. I felt at the time very much in the feeling of stating a extreme violence. Fraser was making excellent choices. He signed up Riley's contemporary Patrick Caulfield around the same time. Although their work looked very different, Riley and Caulfield both applied paint in a meticulously controlled way to create paintings with a neutral and impersonal surface. I think that her work required much greater precision than I, would, I thought necessary. I mean, I was interested in projecting an image, but not in a way that confused my eyesight. Caulfield's trademark was his use of household gloss paint and his deceptively simple black outlines. Now 68, his speech is affected by a recent illness. The black line, minimal as it is, just adds uh, strength to the colour and it adds drama. Do you paint them freehand? More or less, yes. Yeah, even um, if it's a very straight line where you can use masking tape. I rarely use it because masking tape leaves a a build-up on the edge. In the end, it's easier to just patiently paint the line and just keep correcting it until you get it right. Robert's world was considered to be cooler and hipper. That would be the way I'd describe it. Robert was um, Pop and, you know, Andy Warhol, which was actually a lot more exciting. You know, you didn't have to buy a, a, a thesis. You just said, well, this is what's going on now. In the mid-60s, the Robert Fraser Gallery was the place to see pop. Fraser's list of pop artists was definitive. 
As well as American pop artists Lichtenstein, Oldenburg and Warhol, Fraser also showed their British counterparts, Peter Blake, Clive Barker and Derek Bosher. Each of us came from a little area, but the, the common link was the popularist, the use of uh, appropriation. In fact, that's what we did, appropriate it all the time. You know, we looked at the real world and we wanted to paint the things that interested us and it turned us on. It was about the sort of common object. I mean, I, in a way, that's what pop's about, you know. At that time, I didn't know that's what was happening, but they were the things that interested me. Just Coca-Cola bottles, zips and whatever. In fact, I did one or two paintings of zips. And then I thought, well, you know, the fact is, why don't I use the real zip? It's a great object, and I thought, I'll use it. Bosher was more political than many of the pop artists. His work questioned the value of American consumerism. Probably starts with America at the breakfast table, starting with the cornflake packets, which are American in design, American in packaging, and American in the whole setup. The giveaway gifts, the something for nothing technique. I looked at symbolism, you know, I looked at, you know, symbols that were, you know, that, that special K and the, and the letter K all through my sort of art life, really. I re used it recently, all paintings I did in Texas about KKK. We were um, definitely iconoclasts, you know. If you make something in cloth, you know it's going to deteriorate. Um, and I was, that was deliberate. And I did a surfer and a cowboy and a pom-pom um, a girl. And because I'd been in London on my own, um, that's why I made the granny and the um, old man. And uh, so I made my family, you know, to sort of have relatives. <laughs> Robert could convince um, a museum to buy this crazy work. And, of course, mine... Was mine's difficult to sell, you know, cloth work, it's easier probably now because they're paintings, but cloth sculpture is um, very ephemeral and, um, you know, somehow or other he, he pulled that off, which is no mean trick. <laughs> he was the favorite son of his mother, I believe. He was, you know, the, the baby of the family. I said that The Red Shoes was the most important movie I ever saw. He said, Man, I went with my mother to see Peeping Tom. He said that was the biggest. You see, that's the difference. The red shoes and Peeping Tom is the difference between Robert and I. Mother was a um, Christian scientist, very tender towards Robert, very interested in his interests, fought all kinds of battles for him and always stood totally by him. She was a small, elegant, bird-like woman who used to send Robert um, almost daily tracts and cuttings from the Christian Science Monitor and she'd, she'd ring up and of course I'd answer the phone and she'd say, is Robert there, Susan? And I'd say, um, hold on, Mrs. Fraser. And I'd say, it's your mother. say, tell her to fuck off. They used to have tiffs, my mother and he, and um, I used to be called in from time to time to sort out the tiffs. And he wouldn't talk to her for a month or six weeks or something. And she was always going in, nipping into the gallery and he was sort of hiding from her and things like that. Very strange. But um, it was a very close relationship, really. Is, is homosexuality OK with Christian scientists? <laughs> I think not. Kasmin's second show after Noland was maverick British artist John Latham, who in the early 60s was making anarchic reliefs from destroyed books. I mean, you, know, you can't imagine anything more of an antithesis. Noland was very party pre. He didn't want anything to do with pop art or that sort of loose type of work. Though I had got Noland and Latham to, to become friends, I guess. I mean, just not liking each other's work necessarily, but they both played chess, and the other strange link between them was they both had stomach ulcers, so they'd talk about 
uh, milk and um, powders that they used to answer. So, although it looked jolly peculiar having John show after Nolan's, um, it, it actually it was wonderful for the gallery because it was the, the way of saying straight out that you know we're going to be doing different things. We're not just one line. We're going to be doing different. Things. Latham is a very original English artist. Shall I try looking at that? That side, and then that side. Um, that's what you've seen, and that's what happened. Have you got that? That's what you, that's what happens, and that's what you see on it. He must have not been considered odd by the rest of the world. I mean, he was a skipper of a ship in the, in the war. You know, being the skipper of a ship in the war is, is uh, relatively, it would indicate some normalcy, I would have thought. When I showed his work, I did not understand everything about his, uh, the theoretical structure behind it at all. Uh, but I liked the the evidence, what the, the work that was informed by this was in itself voluptuous, interesting, and provocative. People didn't know what to say about the use of books. And more or less fizzled out. I lost interest. Casmin <laughs> walked out. And so I had no dealer, and I took on a teaching job in St Martin's. In early 65, maybe, Robert literally knocked on the door and came in and stuttered a lot, had a pink shirt, and smelt rather nice, and absolutely went apeshit for my Victor Valiant nuclear bomber sculpture with all the rockets. He said, will you put that in my summer show? I've got one or two 60s drawings left still. There we are. I promise I'm coming. Right, no coming. Now let's get out. I remember calling self vividly. Bugger, bugger, bugger. Norwich Colin, quite rural feeling. Um, wonderful pictures done around um, the Lake and Heath American air base of sort of barbed wire and dogs. He's a super guy. He's so funny. I mean, he just um, paranoid as hell, but I mean, <laughs> the whole world is <laughs> I'm not bitter and twisted. I'm worse than that. This is another one. That's one of the first. That's waiting women. That's a woman who's been totally violated, and there's this ghastly, twisted nuclear object coming her way. Singly, I defined the nuclear epoch. Richard Hamilton has actually said, I'm the best draftsman there's been in England since William Blake. And um, Robert would tell people that I'm a genius. Robert owed me some money once, and he, um, well, once. He always owed money. You know, I'd only just started up, I had a new baby. <laughs> it was kind of, you know, we needed that money. And you'd go down there, it'd be like £100 he owed. And you'd walk into the gallery and you'd say, oh, look, um, do you want to come out and have lunch with me? Because um, I'm having lunch with Marlon Brando. And of course you'd say yes. So you'd sit opposite Marlon Brando and you'd say, hi, I'd ask him about his movies and whatever. We'd have a bit of lunch. You'd leave, I'd walk down the road and think, oh, that was great, you know you met Marlon Brando. And you think, Christ, I never got my money from Robert. He never, ever paid bills. Every single day I'd come in and there'd be letters, handwritten, copper plate, from Coots, because of course he banked with Coots. 
saying the manager presents his compliments to Mr. Fraser and would inform him that at close of business yesterday, um, the gallery was X amount overdrawn, and Robert would just literally throw them to one side. He didn't give a damn, really. He was the antithesis of his father's, you know, sort of city gent ethos. I mean, that wasn't at all how he saw it, and you know, stewardship and all that sort of thing. He just thought it was there to spend and have a good time as soon as you can. And Food, drink, taxes, um, sex, or whatever um, he he was feeling like. We were at a very, very elegant party, and Robert was very attentive. And uh, he took out a little package of crystally stuff and put out six lines on the marble fireplace and rolled up a $100 bill and said, here, try this. And then he just waited to see what would happen. Because <laughs> I had a wonderful, well, it was the first time I did coke. It was an absolute gasp. It's kind of soft but a lot of fun. I've never ever taken any of the so-called hard drugs. Some friends brought some LSD over from, from Holland, and so we all started a trip out. Was that your first time with yeah. Robert? Yeah, yeah, he was my initiator as well, yeah. It was Robert Fraser, it was Michael Cooper, it was Christopher Gibbs, it was Anita Pallenberg, it was a lot of people. Brian Epstein was very important, Paul McCartney was very important, John Lennon was very important. There was a lot of very interesting people around at the time. And we knew all of them. One of the people on the scene was former child star and self-avowed Satanist Kenneth Anger. A leading avant-garde filmmaker from Los Angeles, he had screenings of his films at Fraser's flat. I became fast friends with Robert, and then I got to know uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards quite well, and that was my circle of friends. Robert was a tremendous fame fucker with uh, the Rolling Stones. That really was a big deal. There were rock people at my gallery. I don't know, I seem to remember Jimi Hendrix being around a lot. I remember movie directors. I remember Antonioni being around. And, and I think that, that, that maybe more of the big name swingers went to it. I've never had to think of the private views and who turned up. The openings were great, you know. I mean, just everybody was there, you know. And Robert was a great guy because he'd introduced you to people and. Um, you know, you, you met Dennis Hopper and, you know, Marianne Faithful would be there, you know, uh, the Stones would be there and the Beatles would be there. The Italian film director was doing blow-up at the time. Antonioni, I believe, yeah. He was at one or two openings. And Marlon Brando appeared at one time. I certainly never have Marlon Brando at an opening, if that's what you're challenging me with. Uh, I also wasn't very good at recognising who was a great star, so that he could have come in and I might not even have realised it was him. Not that I didn't go to the films, I'm very bad at uh, recognising celebrities. I always assume it's a look-alike. <laughs> Do you know the syndrome? Uh, uh... Robert did do parties with quite a lot of drink um, for those days. Um, until I think he decided that drugs were much better. So <laughs> did an opening and there was no drink at all. <laughs> Everyone just had to snort or sniff or do whatever. <laughs> Robert introduced me to Aaron as well. <laughs> so he, was that one of his things that he really liked to turn people on to? I guess so. <laughs> it was his speciality, let's put it that way. It was like uh, the dessert uh, of a party. Kind of thing. Robert says to me, first place, he looks like he weighs about like a Biafran. I mean, that's what it was like. And he was so thin. He said, uh, you know, I've become, he, what was the word he used? A schmecker. Do you know this Yiddish term, but also, I mean, uh, for doing it in your nose. And he said, I'm a heroin addict. I got quite a bit of it 
She's got quite a big habit. Robert had probably a massive habit. I remember my shock when once I had to go and uh, get something from him at, at Mount Street and arrived there, and he was in his pyjamas and um, barefoot, and seeing um, on his around his ankles all these these syringe marks, these injection marks, hundreds of them. Awful. Awful. We, as a family, were constantly being asked for more money in a, um, uh, because he was always running out of money. It was his mother over and over and over and over. His father and then his mother, probably his brother. Um, and then, of course, all the, all the all the unknown and unsung people um, who, he, who, who he never paid, you know. They must have helped a lot to keep the show on the road. <laughs> uh, Dame Bridget Riley, God bless you. <laughs> I do remember on one occasion, um, he was uh, trying, I think, in his own way to pay, but um, he came to tell me that he couldn't actually uh, do so, and he kept a taxi outside while he went a very long and torturous way about explaining just how hard it was for him to put his hand in his pocket and pay. <laughs> I wanted to make the the best gallery of a certain sort and for it to be to have an influence on the world I lived in and, and the, the you know the British world of people who looked at pictures. Robin Denny was another of Casmin's artists. In the 60s, he was very well known for his abstract paintings in subtle colours. Critics liked to extemporise about what they represented and took their cue from Denny's declared interest in science fiction. I'm not very helpful in this field because I try not to explain nor describe anything I do. I mean, I know we live in a culture where everything has to be explained and described, and, but I, I don't subscribe to that. I hope that in the in due course they will give off whatever they give off in their own way. Good for you, but it doesn't mean I'm going to give up. Everything that's written about it always says that you were interested in control boards, circuits, wiring diagrams. Were you? <laughs> no, not really. A lot of my artists were, were very, very serious guys who whenever there was an issue would have come out as... as um, I mean, solemn would be overdoing it, but they were... Serious, committed, very responsible spokesman for their professional positions, you know. Do you feel that you've had the recognition you deserve? Yeah, I'm sure I have. I've probably had more recognition than I deserve, I expect. Um, I don't know how much one deserves anything, you know. I have no sense of what I deserve. I just do what I want to do, and if people love me for it, then I, I'm happy, and if people despise me for it, then they can go and fuck themselves, as far as I'm concerned. This was Swinging London in 1966, and Denny's work was the height of fashion. Fraser's artists were getting a lot of attention too. Clive Barker's Van Gogh's chair was hugely popular and was a turning point in his career. It got us such a lot of publicity. Um, that um, I got invited to all the sort of biennales and things after that. You know. Yeah, that was a crucial piece for me, really. And who owns that piece? Paul McCartney. Did you become a sort of bit of a celebrity at that point? I think we all did, yeah. We were invited to everything, you know. They'd ring up and... Those magazines in those days would ring up and ask what colour tie you were wearing or what shoes you got on and, you know. Robert Fraser, was he kind of famous too at that point? Oh, yeah. In a way, he was probably more famous than all of us, you know. Well, probably not, but you know what I mean. Everybody knew Robert. I mean, just everybody. I remember on one occasion, I had a large group of studies, very small drawings um, using blacks, whites, greys and um, pencil uh, notes. And uh, there were about 40 or 50 of these, which Robert wanted to show. And we had worked all day on putting these up. And we were in despair, both of us, because it didn't look at all right. And I went home, and about 
two hours later, Robert rang up and said, don't worry, I've had an idea. I think it's going to be all right. The opening was the next day. And when I went to the gallery first thing in the morning, I was amazed. He had painted the entire place black, walls, um, ceiling, all the woodwork, everything was completely black. And so these little light, pale um, studies, very fragile pieces of paper, shone and um, was, was set off in, in an amazing way and the whole place looked absolutely beautiful. I think what separated myself and a small group of artists was that we kind of celebrated the present, uh, urban life and, and the kind of urban experience. The city was the, the landscape for us and it wasn't so much the city seen as the city felt and perceived. The paintings I made were based on big elaborate ads, big elaborate billboards. Painter Richard Smith now lives in New York. In the 60s, he was a big star in the London art world, although he's little known now. Represented by Kazmin, he made paintings that merged gestural mark-making with the commercial subject matter of pop art. The paintings looked abstract, but in fact incorporated logos from things like cigarette packets. Panatella was based on a, on a cigar band. So it was this idea of taking something really rather small and then painting it 10 foot long. I have to honestly confess to you that this is how square I was. I did not know that some of his pictures referred to, I couldn't have worked out what product because I didn't watch television. I didn't know what product some of the design shapes referred to, you know. Gift wrap is a large painting, 20 foot so long, and it has um, two canvases. And from each one is a block that comes out at an angle. So they were big and awkward and that, uh, but it seems it worked. I like the way that he moved in a world of, of shapes, was, was always, to me, both engaging and seductive. I think. The way the gallery was characterised at its best was that they were just very good artists showing very good artworks. But of course, you know, London became the sort of capital of cool. It wasn't actually the capital of cool, it was called something else then, whatever it was the Time magazine invented to describe swinging London. And so all the sort of so-called celebrities were being asked, you know, where they spent their holidays and what kind of aftershave lotion they used and, you know, would they go and live in Dublin because it was tax-free zone and all that kind of thing. And so Catherine became kind of one of the beautiful people and people were asking his opinions about all sorts of things other than contemporary art. So it became a sort of celebrity venue in a way. Not quite like Robert Fraser, but sort of not unlike it. I remember being on TV quiz shows, or, you know, what's being a celebrity? It's being invited to be on a quiz show, isn't it, now? Or being listed in... I was hardly going to be listed in the eligible chaps. You were the first person in London with a loft, so were you the grooviest guy in town then? Well, I thought I was pretty groovy. <laughs> I kind of hate stars. I, th I think that fame is akin to madness, and... I became a bit famous within art, and I found that I just hated the concept of fame. I wanted to be unfamous. In Robert Fraser's case, it was nearly always something to do with shock or law-breaking in the sense of putting a work that could be called obscene in the window of his gallery. His gallery, unlike mine, was a, a shop-type gallery, so he had a window in which he could put things that provoked public reaction, so that a lot of Robert's press it was not just what his artists were doing, but the cocking a snook at the public. I made this show of uh, cocks and cunts. There were a lot of collages 
using Selfridge's then wrapper, which I remember so clearly had pink roses with green foliage. And what these, these collages were was male and female genitalia. They were drawings of penises in, in exuberant poses, uh, not particularly anatomically correct, but it was, you, get the, uh, you got the idea. And the vaginas were carefully painted watercolors with Palazzi's um, collage material tastefully arranged around them. If you looked through the, the, the window from outside, from the pavement, you would, you would see a sort of blur, so that the, the idea that people would be enticed in through the plate glass window, you'd have to have binoculars, really. Jim had done this long collage. It was a very long penis. Well, I mean, ish. It looked like um, a sort of stuffed fish in a pub bar rather than uh, than what it actually was. There was this ridiculous court case charged under the 1838 Vagrancy Act. I mean, it was bizarre. A huge number of important people wanted to give testimony, and Robert had very good lawyers. His wittiest ever um, remark was the telegram he sent to Jim Dine, who'd gone back to New York after the opening. Regina versus vagina. He said, they've taken it away, man. You know, I said, really? I mean, I was totally shocked. I think Robert was, um, you know, they were targeting Robert. It was a rather public place you could go, call Robert Fraser, and he was this man who was, you know, publicly out of his mind half the time. After that, I picked up on the fact that every time I called the gallery, there was a click. And I thought, oh my God, his line is bugged. And so, we're very careful talking on the phone, but um, so, I think they wanted him, you know, they really wanted to get him, and, um, and they did. Robert Fraser was staying at Redlands, Keith Richards' country house in Sussex, on the 12th of February 1967, the day the Rolling Stones were famously busted for drugs. This episode gave rise to one of the 60s best-known paintings. We were sitting about when suddenly rat-a-tat-tat and Lily Law from Chichester um, mob-handed was at the door and, and Marianne was putting her fur wrap on. It was the first time we'd ever taken acid and it was an absolute gas. We had such a laugh and we were having a lovely time, sort of tripping out on the beach, all those kind of things, and then we got back at about five, six o'clock and started to gently come down. And at about 10 o'clock, 25 cops walked in. And of course, we were still tripping and we couldn't take it seriously. And that's what drove the cops crackers. What they really hate is being laughed at. And I mean, the funniest thing I remember was that as they were leaving, Keith put Bob Dylan singing Everybody Must Get Stoned on the stereo very loud. We were just falling about laughing. You know, this is not a good way to handle a bust. <laughs> Everybody must get stoned. But I was very surprised that um, Robert should have heroin in his bag pocket. Robert had heroin. Um, which at the time was regarded as the most appalling thing and a, a fearful crime, really. I suppose a lot of us thought, well, it's different, the Stones and that, um, taking drugs and whatever, because they have no responsibilities. Whereas Robert had a kind of responsibility to us, in a sense, that, you know, all of the artists that he was involved with, you know. On the sort of ethical level, I don't really think that what we were doing was wrong at all. You know, taking a few drugs in your own house without any children present or minors, not corrupting anybody, minding nobody's business but your own. I do not think that is a crime. And I think the laws were wrong then and they're wrong now. 
Anthony McCowan told magistrates at Chichester today that police officers who went to the home of the Rolling Stones lead guitarist during a party found sticks of incense. There was no sign of incense having been actually burned, but the prosecution would say that the burning of incense could be used to mask the smoking of cannabis resin. The rather grim scenes of Mick Jagger and Robert Fraser appearing handcuffed together at the Chichester court this morning are surely an unnecessary humiliation. Faithful, Mick Jagger's girlfriend, lunched today at the same hotel in Chichester as Keith Richards. I will never forget those court appearances. I mean, not that I was in court, but having to watch them in court, realising the danger they were in. It was terrible. And I'll never forget how beautifully they dressed. I thought that was wonderful. After lunch, Mr Jagger had changed his bright green jacket to one of charcoal grey. And Mr Richard had changed out of a jacket with thick black and white stripes into green. That was so wonderful, where the press, all they really wrote about was, and Mr Jagger was wearing a, a pale green jacket with a, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. The, the way they used that court case for their clothes. I, of course, didn't really think of that. I should have done, but I didn't. When Robert went to jail, Richard Hamilton decided he was going to make a painting to show um, what happens when you take two people who are not your ordinary criminals and take them to jail. Rolling Stone Mick Jagger and Mayfair Art Gallery director Robert Fraser were handcuffed yesterday during journeys between Lewis Prison and the Chichester Court. The image shows them in the car with their hands raised and their handcuffed together and they're smiling. And Robert told me the whole point was they wanted to show everybody, look, here's Mick Jagger handcuffed. And that was what um, Richard focused on and did a huge number of paintings and indeed prints various variations on this very iconic image. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were both conditionally discharged. Robert Fraser was sentenced to six months in prison for drugs offences. He said, I'm going to jail. Like that. His mother said, his mother said it's the first time since he was 11 years old where she knew where he was at night. And he had the best time. He had had the best time, worked in the kitchen. When I came to see him, he, he had his kitchen coat cut open down to the waist like this, you know. He was having a great time. He wanted to come out in style, and so I had to arrange for his limousine, a big black Daimler, the kind that the Queen has had to go and fetch him from the scrub so that all his mates at the scrubs could see him leaving, not to mention the, the, uh, the screws, um, and then to drive him back to, to um, Mount Street. We went to the Albert Hall and uh, it was an international busker festival. And there was this guy got up and started to sing and Robert said, I had him in the scrubs, he said. Out of jail, Robert was back on the scene. His imprisonment had done nothing to diminish the hipness of his salon. Kenneth Anger was back in London, hanging out at Fraser's flat, as were John Lennon and Yoko Ono. He typifies what um, London was in those days, in a very good sense, that they were kind of um, very hip people, but also elegant and very intelligent, and he was a power there. I made Lucifer Rising in London, and I used as my main set uh, Robert Fraser's apartment on uh, Mount Street. I had a friend who lived upstairs, and um, I mean, he came out one day, and there was a sort of great winged Egyptian thing pinned on his door, and it said, Curse be he who disturbs the sleep of the pharaohs. <laughs> he was rather surprised. I didn't make any converts. 
for a couple more years after he came out of prison, Fraser continued to run the gallery. Jan Harworth had a show there in 1969, which consisted of more cloth works, including a pile of fabric doughnuts. I went round one day to the doughnuts, and one was missing. I had six doughnuts that were kind of made out of a marbly kind of cloth, and one was gone. I thought, oh, you know, I was really annoyed because it was a set of six, it was half a dozen, and, and anyway, so I, they were slightly crooked, and I just thought somebody's lifted one. So I put my hand in the middle of the donut to sort of straighten it up, and when my finger came out, there was a ring on it that had runes on it. It was like the ring, you know, like <laughs> Lord of the Rings or something. And I was, I thought, I've got him, you know, I've got his ring. Whoever stole my donut, his ring came off. And uh, so I just wore it on my first finger for a while to see who would claim that ring. And Kenneth did. I don't, I doubt very much that I would have, I think I, I know that ring, it's the, um a horoscope ring. It has the signs of the zodiac around it. I don't think I would have done that. Anger um, was often around to disturb the sanctity of Robert's openings. There was a, the um, John Lennon show, which was um, those little collecting boxes made of plaster. Yet again, Fraser was there at a key moment in 60s iconography. When Lennon teamed up with Ono and tried his hand as a conceptual artist, it was Fraser who gave him a show. The whole gallery was filled with your actual charity boxes, which in those non-politically correct days, you had, you know, uh, a crippled child in calipers, or you had a dog, or you had a blind person, and all these collecting boxes were placed in the gallery. And you have to go through that. And then when you go through it, you see this beautiful circle uh, canvas on the wall that says, you are here. And then we sent out white balloons. And with the white balloon, there'll be a little sort of a tag where you can put your name on and address and everything, where the white balloon actually ended up in. And it was just very nice that way, you know, sort of the, to make the event go further than the gallery itself. Yeah. Kenneth rushing about pricking them and putting lighting cigarettes. And but generally, with Robert getting very, very cross. <laughs> Robert standing out in the street saying, they're good, they're beautiful, they're pink. <laughs> Up he went, kind of dump. <laughs> that was fun. But then they um, quarrelled, and Kenneth um, sent him a razor blade um, attached to a postcard, which said, the, the final solution to your stuttering problem. <laughs> Robert was going, <laughs> One time when I wanted a clear answer, I think on some money he owed me, and he started stuttering. Uh, I did uh, make a little f funny card that I sent him with, with razor blades, like, cut your tongue out, then you won't stutter anymore. Did he have any loyalty to people? No. You know what Clive Barker said. He probably said it to you again. He said... There's one thing you could always rely on with Robert Fraser. He always let you down. I don't think he was a shit. I don't think he cared. Then, of course, he didn't care about anything. He fucked his whole life away. In 1969, seven years after he opened, Fraser went bust and was forced to close his gallery. Sensing that the 60s moment was nearing its end, Fraser once again did the fashionable thing and went off to India. Along with the Beatles and the Stones, he became interested in spirituality. But for Fraser, India was a way out. He chose to stay and live there and trained as an Indian dancer. Did you ever see him dance? No, I didn't. I, I can't really imagine it. <laughs> I probably felt quite let down, no doubt, by what had happened to Robert and the fact he'd pushed off owing money all over the place and I spent a whole lot of time trying to help the accountant and so on, but he was indifferent to that. He was drawn to the mystic, erotic world of Tantra, which was very much the flavour of the times. It didn't interest me one bit. I didn't actually like any, any of the stuff, but it was hip. It was very hip to be interested in Tantra. So. 
1972, nine years after he opened, Kazmin closed his Bond Street gallery. It seemed to have a short lifespan. I don't quite know why. I mean, the kind of rise and fall of Kazmin gallery occupies a very short space of time. Dufferin's interests had, had um, moved along a bit, and he was, it, it certainly wasn't a time when I was going to ask him for more money. I mean, he would have uh, wanted to restrict rather than enlarge his financial participation. And I too felt a bit weary of the, there was a general weariness. Kez really cared. He took all his artists and their, their partners to the Savoy for dinner. And he was crying by the end of dinner. That's how much he cared. Robert Fraser returned to London in the 1980s and tried to relaunch his gallery, but he soon became very ill with AIDS. Robert was one of the very, very first people, Robert, as usual, pushing out the frontiers, and he was one of the first people to get it in this country. I remember going up to kiss him, but uh, to think about it twice whether to kiss him or not. Then I said, oh, I've got, I've got to hug him and kiss him, and so I did. And, but I was actually quite shocked, really, by his appearance, yeah. When Robert came back from hospital and was brought back to my mother's, and I was there at the time, and these guys got out of the ambulance, at the back of the ambulance, in moon suits. Um, you know, um, I mean, nobody knew really what AIDS was, and there, here was Robert going into my mother's flat. She was incredible to him, and incredible to him um, at the end when he was sick unto death, and uh, she had him to live in the house and all that. Amazing. Robert Fraser died in 1985. You said at some point, people thought that you were less than serious for, ha for having a friend like that in the 60s. Robert. Yeah. Yeah, fuck him. That's <laughs> too bad. <laughs> yeah, but he was the greatest. I mean, Reader's Digest, when I was a little boy, used to have a column every month. The most unforgettable character I ever met I mean, that's what he was like. I mean, I've never met anybody like him since. And with such a big breath of life. No regret, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> there was absolutely no, 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 no. He wouldn't have regretted any of it. Kasmin's financial backer, Sheridan Dufferin, died of AIDS in 1988. Kasmin gave up art dealing in the early 90s and is now a collector of rare and ancient artifacts, specializing in Indian art. Today, no trace of either gallery remains. The Robert Fraser Gallery has become a stationery shop. And the Kasmin Gallery sells designer Indian clothes. One, two, three, four! An important series that we haven't talked about is um, a thousand temporary objects. Yeah, that's hard. I, I, what I would when have... Did you, when did you start Sorry. doing that? Sorry, yeah. Um, well... I did my drawings and they influenced people. You know, it sounds like I'm bad-mouthing people, but... Oh, Colin, Colin, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you because I just need you to talk specifically about certain pieces so that we can show them yeah. and hear you talking yeah. about them. Right. Um, shall I keep going? In, in The Nuclear Victim, what I did... I used table tennis balls to do an eye. But can you tell me about a thousand temporary objects? When they... Um, I th and, and also, I think that, that the mastery of subject even influenced David Hockney. A thousand temporary objects. I thought that a thousand was the smallest number of things that I could do, and it would stand as a consensus. Has a thousand temporary objects ever been shown? No, it's never been shown. I wished it was. There's an accompanying exhibition, Art and the 60s, at Tate Britain. For more information, go to bbc.co.uk slash bbc4. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast with your host, Noah Becker. Find us on the web. Find us on Foundation find us on Instagram, find us where you find things.
You can also donate to the podcast, and you can leave a rating or a comment. See you around the art world.